Measles has recently reemerged as a public health threat in the United States. New York City and Rockland County, New York, have both experienced outbreaks this year, and in response, the local governments have taken steps, including fining unvaccinated people and barring unvaccinated children from public spaces. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Julie Cantor, an adjunct professor at the UCLA School of Law. Dr. Cantor has written a perspective article about local measures to encourage measles vaccination, including vaccine mandates. Dr. Cantor, you write in your perspective article that New York City and Rockland County have seen the most cases of measles during these recent outbreaks. Why were those regions at particular risk? Has vaccine hesitancy been an issue historically in those places? It's a question that has been answered in part by a research letter in the Lancet Infectious Disease Journal. Uh, Sarkar and colleagues had a piece published in May where they really looked at, in large part, what you're asking. And they found that two components were really critical to having these outbreaks. And they are logical. One is that you need a local community with a low vaccination rate, and the other is that you need the reintroduction of a virus because we don't have measles here. We import measles, so to speak. So focusing on those two prongs, the first one, a local community with a low vaccination rate, this seems to have been emerging over time. And a professor of pediatrics and molecular virology at Baylor University, Peter Hotez, has noticed that you need insular communities, and these communities tend to be connected around a shared culture or a religion or a particular school. And my sense is that they are limited or cut off from or skeptical of science and scientific education. And I think you can see that both in the Orthodox Jewish communities at issue here. And there have been people who have written about that issue. Most recently, I think it was even in today's New York Times, there was a piece by a gentleman who's writing a memoir reflecting on his time in one of those communities and talking about his lack of science education there and skepticism of science. There are also biases that can come into certainly any cognitive model. And in these communities, you can mistake correlation or association for causation. It's not particular here, but if you're all reinforcing the same belief, you can also have other biases, attribution bias, recency bias, you know, like so-and-so had measles and it wasn't that bad. So therefore, and, you know, kind of carry on in that way, as opposed to really focusing in on data and science and history there's this risk of reinforcing rumor, myth, and misinformation. So that would be kind of the background. You need that low vaccination rate. And it's not particular to a religion, and it's not necessarily particular to a school. It just happens to be that people tend to cluster. And in fact, in the Orthodox Jewish community, there have been prominent rabbis who've spoken out saying that it's actually your duty as a religious person who follows this particular Jewish law to get vaccinated for a variety of reasons. So there isn't that kind of overlay here. And then finally, just the second prong in terms of the introduction of the virus, we see it coming from overseas, people either visiting Europe or the Philippines or people coming from those areas and then coming to a community where the vaccination rate is low. And so there's almost the kind of tinder and then the spark. And for people who are familiar with the way measles behaves, it kind of lingers in the air for up to two hours. And so if you're in a room and you leave the room and you have measles and you are exposing the room to it, and then somebody else can walk into the room, there's a very high rate of infection. And it's this confluence of a perfect storm, so to speak. 
So given all of that, what about the measures that have been taken by these local governments to prevent the spread of measles? Why did officials believe that that kind of intervention was necessary? Officials have a really big problem and they need to address it. So they have a duty to deal with public health. That's part of obviously their charge. And the question really becomes, what is the best way to do it? What are the most effective measures? What do we know about human behavior and how people respond to directives? So I think you need to be thinking about those things. And I think it's important to say at the outset that in my article, I wanted to make it really clear that I think everybody in the public health community and people who are involved in this issue in New York have public health and best interests in mind. I don't think this is a particularly like malevolent policy and that it was geared to harm people. Certainly quite the contrary. I think it was in all of these interventions are well-intentioned. And to kind of focus on some of the things that local governments in both Rockland and New York City have done in terms of orders, and there are interventions or measures that they have put into place that go outside of these orders. But from that kind of legal point of view, I think that there's a level of frustration that emerges and also this sense of this is getting further out of control. So a panic sets in. And those are really important issues to be aware of when you're setting policy. Historically, when people become panicked, when they become scared, civil liberties tend to take a backseat. We need to keep everybody safe. Therefore, people's civil rights can be infringed upon. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind when you're making policy, especially in situations like this, where people are really concerned and then there's the sense of disease getting out of control. So dialing back, a couple of things happened in Rockland. It's important to note that although we've been talking about the most cases in 2019, both Rockland and New York City, their outbreaks began last fall, that is fall of 2018. So Rockland had some visitors from overseas, and it's believed and thought and generally proven that they brought measles with them. So they experienced outbreaks in the fall, and a couple of things were done. One was to tell unvaccinated children that they could not attend school. And one curious issue there is they didn't cite to any sort of CDC or New York State guidance or any kind of measures there. It seems logical in a sense of, well, if there's measles, then we want unvaccinated children out of school. But there were a few parents, in fact, a group of more than 40 parents who said, but there were no measles cases in the school to begin with. So isn't this a bit of an overreach? And they litigated that issue. And one of the curious things about this particular ban of unvaccinated children from schools is that initially the people who were instituting these bans, the people in the public health area, said that they could return to school when the population rate of that school reached 70%. And then about a month later, they changed it to 80%. And then a bit later, they changed it to 95%, which finally is aligned with herd immunity ideas. But my question is, where did that 7080 come from? And are you undermining your credibility when you put things out there without having, in my view, really run them to ground and said, here's exactly why we're doing like nobody likes, you know, because I told you so, whether you're an adult or a child, like nobody likes because I told you so, whether it's coming from the government or your mother or whatever. So that kind of sense of like, well, because. Where did it come from and why did you do that? And then if you're putting out policies where it's not really clear from you, the policymaker, to the people who are on the receiving end, doesn't that fit the narrative of mistrust or even distrust and kind of undermine your credibility to make proposals going forward? 
So they did that on the school end of things. And then in March in Rockland, the county executive, who is akin to the mayor, the head of the county, he declared a state of emergency and he banned with his state of emergency. It was like kind of, I'm declaring a state of emergency. And with that, I'm banning all unvaccinated children from public spaces designed for more than 10 people, but not taxis. So again, as an outsider, I'm sort of like, well, wait a minute, what's so special about more than 10 people in a space? And what makes that up? And why not taxis? Although I do understand that people need to go places. And why are you banning unvaccinated children in the first instance? Where does that come from? So a number of parents litigated that issue and brought it before a state judge. And it really became a question of statutory interpretation. So he was operating under a particular law, Executive Law 24. And there are words in it that says he can declare states of emergency if there's a disaster, a riot, a catastrophe, a public emergency, there's fear of immediate danger, and he thinks the public safety is imperiled. So two things happened there. One is that the state judge thought that it didn't meet the definition of immediate danger, even though epidemic was included in these statutory definitions. The state judge didn't think that 166 cases out of 330,000 people in a population met that definition of epidemic or danger. And some people have said, well, where was the epidemiologist? Shouldn't we have brought in an expert? So that's kind of a litigation question there. But the second part of the statute was that even if you found that it was a disaster, a riot, a catastrophe, et cetera, your state of emergency order could not exceed five days. And that's just reading the plain language of this section 24. And the county executive's order was 30 days. And so even if it was an emergency, let's just assume for the sake of argument, you can't have a 30-day order. You're not authorized to do that by this law. And so that law was then enjoined. But interestingly, and this really is an overlay of the rule of law and like the role of judges and who people elected saying, okay, well, the judge said. So the county executive has gone on and he removed the banning unvaccinated children from public spaces part of his state of emergency. But he has continued to declare a state of emergency in the county twice, even though a judge told him he specifically can't do that. So it's kind of a very interesting kind of sideshow in a way where he is debating publicly the authority of this judge. So that's sort of a footnote, but it's interesting that goes on there. And then in New York City, as I wrote in the perspective piece, they had some, just again on the order side, they had some orders to keep unvaccinated children out of affected schools. And then when that wasn't followed by the schools, they closed the schools. And then the commissioner on April 9th, the health commissioner, did come out with this way that I think she was hoping to encourage vaccination, sort of a strong arm approach, like, okay, now we're mandating vaccination. And if you don't do it, we will have a penalty for you. And it sounds like her idea was this is going to motivate people. And I think that is sort of an outstanding question that people will have to look at data that emerge from this instance and say, well, was it effective? And even if it was effective, was it worth whatever costs there were? And this particular order has been litigated. Litigation is ongoing in state court. There was a small group of parents who said, you can't do that. And it's pretty clear both the state judge that they were in front of and the federal law on this issue, going back to this Jacobson versus Massachusetts case that people are generally familiar with from 1905, which said that under the police power, the states may create public health rules that are reasonable and that may infringe on some aspect of liberty. And that's not necessarily unconstitutional, 
And what we've litigated is mandating vaccination with the threat of a fine. And that, since the time of Jacobson, has been found to be okay as a state law mandate. It doesn't mean states have to do it, but it means that they have the prerogative and the Constitution sets a floor, not a ceiling. So you can do that and still be within constitutional bounds. So those are the things that have gone on from the orders perspective in both Rockland and New York City. And are there any data showing whether these interventions are working, are increasing vaccination rates? That's a really great question. I wasn't able to get at the data from New York City. They have data to say where these vaccines are being distributed. Rockland County did make its data publicly available through its press releases. And there was one press release where the county said, look at how well things have been going since this state of emergency was declared, even aside from this unvaccinated children issue, but just saying, wow, when we declared a state of emergency, that really made things roll into action. And I was curious about whether that was actually true. So I just did some basic math. And this is not statistics or epidemiology, it was just math. So saying that when their outbreak began, they did have a spike in people wanting MMR vaccinations. And if you look at the tally over time, there were about 17,000 vaccinations distributed in the county between the beginning of October 2018 and the end of March 2019. And the state of emergency was declared on March 27th. So it was March 26th, but in effect, March 27th. So the county said, this is just great, and we've really increased vaccination rates. Isn't this a great thing to declare a state of emergency? And if you just look at the sheer numbers, the vaccination rate on a per day basis actually decreased. So if you just do the division, it was about, on average, 96 vaccinations per day between that October to March period. And then if you take the state of emergency to the moment when they put out that press release, it actually was 73 a day. Now, you could say, well, that there was a spike. You can dig into that. But them using it as an example of how successful their declaration was seemed to me not to be shored up just by that basic math. And I haven't been able to get at the New York City numbers, though I did try. Now, it's a good research project for a going forward basis. And I think that's one thing that needs to be done in these instances is really honing in on what works. And then when you put out a policy, shoring that policy up, not only with data, but with citations to the literature and citations to the case law, so you don't have to kind of relitigate things. There's a really strong case from the Second Circuit that I mentioned in my piece, this Phillips versus New York City case. And it is totally clear that this idea of saying, going to federal court or even state court, but federal court in this instance, and saying, this particular state mandate infringes upon my constitutionally guaranteed liberty, it doesn't really have legs. And the Second Circuit couldn't have been more clear about this. And this is a 2015 case. So I think it's important for when you're putting out policy to cite to the cases. I think it's important to cite to the medical literature. And again, it gets under that idea of like, stop telling us what to do. It's we're all in this together. We're a community. We're the leaders here of this particular policy. And we're going to explain to you why we're taking these steps and why they make sense. So in another perspective article, Silverman and colleagues discuss the question of whether adolescents should be allowed to consent to vaccination, even if their parents object. That's one example. Are there other measures that state or local governments could take to encourage vaccination that would not infringe on individual liberty too much? 
Sure. I think focusing on the case law, a couple of things that have been found by the vast majority of courts to be perfectly within constitutional bounds are things that we're seeing now on the state level. For example, New York saying that we're no longer going to have religious exemptions to vaccination. So if the state has a rule that if you want to go to public school or even private school in the state, in other words, you don't want to be homeschooled or come up with your own school program, you want to take part in the greater community, then you need to have proof of vaccination unless there's a medical exemption. But you can't have a religious exemption or in some states they have a philosophical exemption. So New York recently rescinded its religious exemption. So that's one thing. And there are many cases saying that does not infringe on your First Amendment right to practice religion. And there's a host of case law um, along those lines. Similarly, California recently passed a law that shores up its issue there on the exemption rate, saying that we have no philosophical or religious exemptions to vaccination, but of course we do have medical exemptions. And one thing that was concerning after California removed its philosophical religious exemption program or its statute, it got rid of the statute, that it looked like people were doing an end run around the statute by then getting medical exemptions. There was a research letter showing data to suggest that the rate of exemptions was the same. It's just now they're all medical exemptions, not a mix. And so what the legislature has done is to close that loophole by saying, okay, well, we're going to have oversight as to what the medical exemptions are to be sure that they're really legitimate and data-driven and scientific. So those are some things that are going on that if they're litigated, they're not going to go very far just based on the existing law. I mean, you can always try and you can say, well, my litigation strategy is to find the few cases that support my point and I'm going to make a movement out of this. I mean, you're certainly welcome to do that. I just don't think that's going to be a very effective strategy and it will certainly be an expensive one. But if that's where you want to go, I suppose you could do that. They've also been doing other kind of less intrusive strategies. And I think the key here is if you're going to do this, that your execution is just impeccable. So for example, in New York City, to its credit, it has been really trying to get the word out about the importance of vaccination and trying to make inroads into insular communities by speaking in the languages that are spoken in that community, even though everybody speaks English, for example, with materials that were geared toward the particular Orthodox Jewish communities in the neighborhoods in Williamsburg. They also had, for example, a door hanger about vaccination, about measles translated into Yiddish. The problem, as Elizabeth Cohen of CNN uncovered, was that the translations were so terrible that it really kind of undermined the whole effort. So I think, obviously, things are costly financially. It costs money to print up pamphlets or posters or whatever. But you also need to make sure that you don't undermine your credibility. And things that have been seeming to be effective in large part, certainly in this Williamsburg community, has been community action and really grassroots efforts that talk to people. I haven't seen any evidence about this. That the government has actually sort of sat down with people and said, what are your concerns? What do you think the best way is to address those concerns? If we addressed it in this way, does that resonate with you? And so filling the gap there has been, in at least one instance, a, a nurses association, the Orthodox Jewish Nurses Association in Brooklyn, and they have been having talks in living rooms. There's a thirst for information, so they've been drawing up pamphlets and paying for them either out of pocket or with donations 
that talk about the science and that cite to the science. And some of the nurses have PhDs in nursing and are particularly expert in calling data and explaining these sources and explaining things to people in lay language and making sure that they understand them and that it makes sense. They also organized a women-only conference because in this particular community, there are some gender restrictions and people tend to suggest that mothers are making decisions about vaccination, so it made sense to focus on women. And they set up sort of a conference area tables that had questions or myths or issues, and then there was a trusted nurse or a doctor or a community leader that would answer those questions. They've also set up private vaccinations, so if you don't want everybody to know that you're going into the clinic that the city has set up, that you can have things privately addressed in your home. And so it seems to me that the real key here that could come from either the community or the government would be trust, getting people to trust what you say, giving them information, empowering them to make decisions, finding a balance between permissiveness, authoritativeness, and authoritarianism. And people tend to rebel, at least in certainly in this American culture at authoritarianism, at least historically. And then having influencers, whether that's an influencer that is a nurse or somebody in the community or people that have a veil of trust around them already to talk about the importance of vaccination, to talk about where these myths come from and to unpack the science for them. And I think that those are really keys to getting control of this issue. And then just as we talked about at the top, where vaccination is low, there's certainly a risk of an outbreak arising for the public health community and even the medical community to start taking action now to get those rates up and to deal with misinformation or disinformation and get people to think about these issues before it becomes an outbreak. Because like I mentioned, that toxicity to civil liberties is really that panic piece. And so to get things under control and to have a plan in place that makes sense before things happen, I think is absolutely critical. Thank you, Dr. Cantor.